Welcome to the Five Smooth Stones podcast with Daniel Watts, the director of the EGM Institute. Growing up as a little boy, my grandmother's family had a kind of legendary status. Grandma was from a family with 12 children, and one of them was my great uncle, who apparently was a frank and forthright person and was given the nickname Dutch. Not exactly sure about that, but that was his nickname. Dutch grew up and married a woman named Clara. This was a problem because Dutch already had a sister named Clara. To differentiate between the two, his wife was referred to as Dutch's Clara. And I remember being a little boy and meeting Dutch's Clara at holidays, family reunions, and the like. He had passed away years earlier. I never met him, actually. She was tall, regal, very formal in her mannerisms. When she was introduced to me, I heard her name very clearly as a little boy, Duchess Clara. Growing up, I came to realize that we were descended from (laughs) some kind of European royalty. And although the Duke had died years earlier, the Duchess lived on through my school years until she passed. Nearly 25 years later, at a family gathering, I kid you not, the discussion turned to family history, and during that discussion, I asked about the royal lineage in our family, which got me quizzical looks from everybody. My brother, a history professor, asked me, what are you talking about? My older sister chimed in immediately, also asking about Duchess Clara. At that moment, everyone started laughing and explained that it was Duchess Clara, not Duchess Clara. For the first four decades of my life, I thought I had some kind of royal European aristocracy blood flowing in my veins. What a huge disappointment. And thankfully, my sister shared in my mistake, which made me feel slightly less idiotic. To this day, my family still laughs about me and the Duchess. (laughs) I had operated my entire adult life with this false assumption regarding family glory. What I thought was true did not alter, didn't really alter the way I did things daily, my daily behavior or character, but that's not always the case. What we think affects usually how we act. How we act can become habit and then affect who we are. And this is certainly true of children, and it was true of the Israelites in Egypt. Genesis closes with Jacob's entire family of 70 moving to Egypt under Joseph's care in Genesis 46, 27. Joseph and his brothers die, and a lengthy period transpires leading to the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt. While there's no exact consensus about dates, it's likely that the Israelites lived for several hundred years in slavery, certainly enough time to bring the promises that were made to Abraham into doubt and cause the Israelites to think of themselves as kind of an abandoned people. This falsehood is at the center of the lesson given by God to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 and 4. In the call of Moses, God reveals three important truths to the Israelites and to Moses. First, God tells Moses the truth about his compassion and faithfulness. God's aware of their suffering and he's heard their anguished cries. 
And although time has passed, God was faithful to his promise to Abraham and had not forgotten Abraham's descendants. He intends to make good on his promise to give Abraham descendants in a land of their own. God's word is good. Let me read Exodus 3, 7 through 10. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I've also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Second, God explains the truth that he has called Moses to be his representative. He tells Moses that he would be leading the Israelites out of bondage and captivity. This revelation hits Moses hard and causes the fear and doubt that underlines his lengthy discussion with God. It reads, go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to him, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have given heed to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us now go a three days' journey into the wilderness, so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Finally, God reveals the truth that there's going to be trouble with the Egyptian. The Pharaoh is not going to just sit back and let Moses lead the Israelites out of Egypt. However, God's power would eventually overcome the Pharaoh's resistance and cause the Israelites to leave Egypt and leave with plunder. In verse 19 through 22, I know, however, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will perform in it, and after that he will let you go. I will bring this people into such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you won't go empty-handed. Each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman living in the neighbor's house for jewelry or silver and of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. We could examine these three revelations in detail. However, we're studying this passage to see that God uses the five smooth stones we studied in Deuteronomy 6 when teaching Moses. We've already noted over the last two weeks how God worked relationally with Moses and how he clearly used experiential activities. Now we see God laying out the truth for Moses. As is always the case, the truth lies at the very heart of the teaching. Without the truth, there's nothing to teach experientially. No reason for discussion, nothing to respond to. The truth is like the skeleton that everything's built around. God's concern for the Israelites, his faithfulness to the promises to Abraham, 
and his desire to free them from slavery at the are at the core of his lesson to Moses. God's truth should be at the core of every lesson that children's leaders present. Our ministry to children is built around communicating the truth of God's word. Without the truth, there can be no teaching ministry. And as we illustrated at the beginning of this podcast, our perception of the truth affects our actions and our character. So many children today don't know important truths such as nothing can separate us from the love of God in Romans 8.39. If we confess our sins, God will forgive us in 1 John 1.9. Our work is ultimately to please God in Colossians 3.23. We should choose our friends carefully, Proverbs 12.26. And you're never alone in Deuteronomy 31.8. And these are just a few examples. As God shows in this lesson for Moses, teaching the truth is essential, like bedrock. We can follow God's lead and make teaching the truth of God's word central to our children's ministry. This weekend, make certain to teach the truth of God's word with conviction, passion, and creativity. The truth can change the life of a child for eternity. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Our next Five Smooth Stones podcast will be this same time next week. To learn more about life-changing children's ministry, check out the EGM Institute website at www.egminstitute.org.